Welcome to Data Skeptic, a podcast about data science and fake news from an algorithmic perspective. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Data Skeptic. This episode features my interview with Robert Schaefer, author of the book Bad UFOs and the blog BadUFOs.com. Robert's a well-known writer in the skeptical world, and he took some time out of his schedule to chat with me about the topic of UFOs and how it's evolved over the years. Excerpts from this interview will appear in one of our segments on fake news on Data Skeptic. Please enjoy my full in-depth discussion with Robert here. Well, Robert, welcome to Data Skeptic. Thank you, Kyle. My pleasure to be here. To get started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you first got interested in the subject of UFOs. Oh, that goes way back. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, of course, that was the heyday of uh, the old-fashioned flying saucers and uh, all the books and Nightcap and all these people claiming that, you know, extraterrestrials were here visiting. And, you know, when I was a kid, eight or ten years old, that sounded good. Then I, I got a little older and a little wiser, and I realized that, hey, wait a minute, you can't really prove a thing like that based on just very vague and inconclusive reports and so on. And so I became a skeptic, but I was interested because the whole thing is fascinating to see what people will argue and how they will argue it. And in some cases, possible maybe somebody has found something that has some validity, although so far it really hasn't turned up anything like that. I went to Northwestern, which, of course, uh, at that time, J. Allen Hynek was the chairman of the Department of Astronomy, and I majored, well, I was a math major, but I also took astronomy classes, and uh, so it was fascinating to get to know him, and this was right in the middle of this crisis about swamp gas and the Condon Report and so on, and so it was just a very exciting and interesting place to be and things to hear, and, and then I got to know Philip J. Class, the, the well-known skeptic who was one of the founders of PSYCOP you know, the first skeptics group way back in the 76 or whenever that was. And I worked with class quite a bit and we investigated things and we shared a lot of information. So I guess I just started doing that and started writing columns and whatever else and just kept on doing it like this. You know, to my reading, and I'm coming to the subject a little later, but looking back into the history of it, it it occurs to me there's been kind of an evolution. You know, this term, the Space Brothers, was kind of popular in maybe the 70s. and then. Well, that was back in the 50s, yeah, with uh, George Adamski and so on, yeah. And then we went through a flap of abduction claims, and that seems to have died down. I'd love to hear your thoughts on sort of the evolution of the claims people make about UFOs. Yeah, people get tired of the old claims. Somebody comes up with something that sounds new and exciting, like whether it's the Space Brothers or these massive sighting reports, the huge numbers of sighting reports in the late 60s. Abductions came along. There was really in a couple different ways. Uh, first abduction claim, of course, was a famous uh, Betty and Barney Hill in New Hampshire when they're out driving late at night and supposedly got picked up by aliens and whatever. Of course, that's all based on so-called recovered memories. It's not something that they supposedly remembered at the time. But then the things changed when Bud Hopkins came along about 1980, published his book, with Hopkins, you didn't have to go out to some dark place on a, on a deserted road for the aliens to get to you. You could just lie there right there in your own bedroom, and aliens will come and walk through walls or whatever and come and get you and beam you up to the saucer and do whatever they do and then beam you back. But like I said, people get tired of these things after a while. They got tired of the Space Brothers because nothing ever came of it, and these guys made all kinds of claims. There's a little bit of common sense to show that whatever they're saying isn't true. George Adamski had all these fakey photographs of what is supposed to be UFOs, and you know, you look at that, oh, come on, that's not, you know, <laughs> that blurry thing, that could be anything. That's just something he faked out in his backyard. 
you know. So people got tired of that sort of thing. Now the latest thing is this nonsense that everybody in the UFO world has been in a frenzy over this thing of the so-called Pentagon UFO program revealed that uh, just came up publicly late last year. And a lot of journalists are taking this very seriously. But, you know, if you look at carefully what is being said and what is being claimed, it doesn't really hold up. The Pentagon didn't release any of these videos that are just, you know, blurry little dots and don't really show much. <coughs> these guys are um, claiming that the um, Pentagon released it and the Pentagon is saying, well, we didn't release anything. And this program wasn't classified in the first place, so there's nothing to declassify. Really, all that that means is that some very influential UFO believers, specifically uh, Robert Bigelow of Bigelow Aerospace, who's doing a really a fine thing with these inflatable space modules. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but Bigelow Aerospace, there's actually an inflatable module right now on the International Space Station. This is all very well and good. But Bigelow is also a believer in alien visitation and such, a, a very hardcore true believer. And he's giving a lot of money to people over the years to different organizations in different places. Although in this case, he got money from the government by basically persuading Harry Reid, who was a Senate majority leader at the time. Bigelow was a big campaign contributor to Harry Reid. And so Reid got a couple of his pals together and they pushed through some appropriation somewhere to, what did they call it, Advanced Aerospace Threat Investigation Program or something like that. And so this went on for a while, and they apparently they investigated UFOs on the government dime, and money went, for the most part, to Bigelow for him and his contractors to investigate these things. But the journalists are loving it, and they're all, you know, putting out these very uncritical stories. Oh, the Pentagon spokesman said this and said that. Well, not really. Yeah, so we, I mean, we've seen a couple of historical analogs, like Project Blue Book, for example, which didn't seem to find anything how is it that the government keeps investing in these sorts of investigations? Well, it's even worse than that because it's not just UFOs. Uh, but if you recall, the Pentagon spent money on remote viewing. The idea was that we wanted to see what was happening on a Russian submarine or something like that during the Cold War. So they had this program where people would remote view this. You, you read off a number of a set of coordinates. And now it turns out it doesn't even matter what the coordinate is, that somehow the, the viewer, his mind just kind of grabs what this is supposed to be and where it's supposed to be. And then he goes over there psychically and then reports on. A lot of people have seen the movie, The Men Who Stare at Goats. Now, that's a slightly fictionalized version. But the book, I highly recommend everybody to read that book by John Ronson of that title, which the movie is based. Just watch, or better yet, read the book, uh, The Men Who Stare at Goats. And you see all the absurd and insane things that the Pentagon woo chase have been uh, trying to do. I'm also curious to hear your thoughts on how much of a historical phenomenon this is. You know, if, if we were to take Eric von Donneken at his words, we would think that there have always been UFOs here, but it seems to me it's been more of a contemporary phenomenon. Uh, what is your take on it? Largely, it's a contemporary phenomenon, although people have uh, been seeing and reporting weird things in the sky for a very long time. But usually it was given um, a religious context in the olden days that, you know, uh, you would not interpret it as uh, beings from another planet or something. If you saw something odd in the sky, you say, well, it's a 
it's angels coming down or uh, it's an army fighting in the sky, two armies fighting in the sky, and this portends that our side is going to win the great battle because God is on our side, you know, and, and something like that. And in fact, it's kind of funny because there was, there was a recent book and it was a, there was a lot of puff pieces written about it, Wonders in the Sky by Jacques Vallée and mm-hmm. what's his name, Chris, uh, something else, uh, Albeck, yeah. And within UFO circles has been talked of, oh, there's this great work of scholarship where they took, you know, these reports from ancient chronicles and saw, here's something in the sky, here's something weird. A couple of people have been spending a lot of time and effort picking this apart. Jason Colavito and Kottmeyer, Marty Kottmeyer, both of whom have been writing a lot of things in recent years. Really, they've, uh, well, Valet and Albeck have really, they've relied on sources that are pretty flaky. It's clear that they're relying in several cases on the Charles Fort and the way that he wrote it up, you know, the original Fortean. It's an attempt to kind of, if you will, to remake history and the past in a modern vein to say, well, these must have been extraterrestrials or something like that, modern UFOs. No, they're not. They're just reports of people would see an aurora borealis and say, well, those are armies fighting in the sky. I can see the light reflecting on their shields or some such thing. And really, it's fascinating. The whole way that this UFO business ties in with society and culture. There's an approach that they call what it, the social, basically a social explanation that it comes from society, from our expectations in society. Well, how is that different from so-called debunking? They say, well, we don't like psychop and skeptic society and so on, because these are debunking groups, whereas these others like the British Forteans, they're taking this social hypothesis. But what's the same thing? If the, if, if the social hypothesis is that society creates them and it's all in our heads, and the other so-called debunking is to say, well, it's all in your head, but by the way, we won't say that society put it in your head. Well, it's the same thing. It's just kind of a maybe a more polite way to say it. All these things, you can, you can look at them from a social perspective and, and see how they, they have tremendous tie-ins, you know, with the way that uh, social um, things are, are with, it, with it, the society that you're in. Um, I had a chance to go to Mexico back in 96. We had a so-called UFO tour of Mexico. So we went to the very hot spots of Mexico where people were seeing and reporting the most things in the sky. And this is where Jaime Malsan was getting all his stories about strange creatures and whatever. We heard lots of stories. We didn't actually see anything. The interesting thing is this. Some of these Mexican people would be reporting seeing you know, lights in the sky, aliens land, whatever, get out, talk to people. Same kind of stories that we would hear you know, here and in other countries. But they say, I just can't believe those stories about aliens stopping and abducting people. That's just too impossible to believe. Aliens coming down into your house and (laughs) abducting you through the walls and whatever. And it's like, that didn't resonate for some reason with Mexican culture. It resonates with American culture. And maybe it's more like, well, we want to, maybe we feel helpless, we feel victims or something like that. And so the aliens are coming and, you know, are victimizing us somehow. And somehow that just doesn't play in Mexico and in Latin America. There's tremendous cultural factors that are at work in, uh, in shaping these paranormal, uh, so-called paranormal hypotheses. That's fascinating. Yet that same culture kind of produced the chupacabra, and we don't necessarily have the same cryptozoological phenomenons here in the states. Right, exactly. Because you know, whatever, whatever factors, cultural factors, give rise to reports of a chupacabra, those factors aren't playing here. So if you get farmers who are not of Hispanic origin, and something kills their 
livestock or other animals, they might say, well, it's, you know, it's wolves or coyotes or it's aliens, but they won't say it's chupacabras. Whereas if it's a Hispanic farmer, oh, a chupacabra came and killed my animal, you know. <laughs> well, there's a lot of these kind of uh, tentpole cases and, and claims that are out there. There's one in particular we're hoping to feature on the show because we're uh, going to be doing a lot of shows about fake news in the coming months. It's sort of a, a timely theme and something we can be skeptical of. And uh, in my mind, the story of the alleged UFO crash in Aurora, Texas, kind of maybe qualifies as a very early instance of fake news. As far as I know, the Aurora, Texas uh, supposed encounter was something that kind of went dormant for a while, and someone essentially kind of found it and popularized it, which is to say that you know the people who were there to experience it didn't seem to tell that tale for too long. Uh, is that a, a correct recant of history? Um, I think it is. I don't recall all the details, but yes, you're right. And, and actually, when I was at Northwestern, and this was the late 60s, early 70s, Heineck was very interested in those airship cases of 96 and 97. He kept talking about them, and he said, well, now that these, you know, we have to get find as many witnesses, still living witnesses as we can, because it won't be very long that, you know, anybody will be alive who remembers these incidents. And he was he was kind of inclined to view them as it's the same thing as we're seeing now with UFOs and it's just being reported a different way. But also, if you remember, the, the Roswell incident was forgotten. This thing was, uh, it, was a, it was a headline of like one or two days back in 1947 in July. Army finds flying saucer in the field or out in the desert or something like that. And the next day, oh, no, it wasn't. It was a, it was a remnants of a balloon. They said a weather balloon, which was disinformation, actually was, a, was intended to be a spy balloon, an intelligence-gathering balloon that they were going to send over Russia. But it was a balloon, whatever kind of balloon, doesn't matter. It was a balloon. And this was forgotten for so long. And then, of course, back in the 50s, when, when you got this uh, Frank Scully business about the uh, little man supposedly crashed in Aztec, New Mexico, and this was a big story. Behind the Flying Saucers, uh, a big book that came out uh, about this and sold a lot of copies, you know, got a lot of attention. Then it was debunked later by J.P. Kahn. That pretty well you know, showed that the, the guys who were promoting that story, the Scully's informants, were basically con men who were trying to get money from gullible people. And what better way to find gullible people than to make up a story about aliens and then wait and see who contacts you. I knew J.P. Kahn. He lived in San Francisco, and he, he was telling me that what the informant said, the Jabauer and Newton would do, is they would look at the mail coming in to Frank Scully about, oh, tell me some more about the, you know these aliens. I'm very interested in it. If it was just a handwritten paper or, or a cheap little typewriter, they'd just toss it out. But if it came in a very nicely engraved, you know, Percival Esquire the Third or something like that, please tell me about these aliens then they would go talk to that guy, you see. <laughs> <laughs> There's a spectrum of these. You know, you can look at the maybe the Billy Meyer stuff, and it's almost absurd that people talk about it. Yes, it is. But And the Roswell, obviously, compared to Billy Meyer, has some semblance of plausibility, I guess. What do you think on that spectrum are the noteworthy cases that are worth our attention, you know, and, and worth debunking and looking into, or, or maybe anything that was surprising as you looked into it? Well, the ones that are worth debunking, so to speak, uh, the one basically it depends on how much publicity they get. They're not, Phil Class always said, you know, I'd mentioned to him, oh, you see this case over here. I bet that's Venus or something. I think I'm going to dig into that one. And he said, oh, don't worry, don't waste your time on that case. Nobody is citing it. Nobody cares about that case. You solve that, they'll say, oh, you just picked an easy one. Say, go for the hardest ones first. 
Let the believers choose the case that you investigate. So you go for the biggies like the Roswell, the Travis Walton, and so on. You know, the ones that they make, that they have said are the, are the most important. You know, you try to make that decision yourself. And that's good advice for the skeptic. I mean, in terms of how to invest your time, there are some cases where you really don't have enough information and you think maybe you have some ideas what happened, but you just don't have enough information to really say for sure. You know, in that sense, you can't really wrap up absolutely every one. But what you can say is that there is no case of any kind that has left behind anything in the way of evidence, either physical evidence or really good quality series of photos or films or videos or something. There's nothing like that. You're simply looking at it and saying, this is truly remarkable. It's always, you know, somebody's got a photo of something, it's blurry, or if it's very sharp and clear, it's like Billy Meyer and his wedding cake photo. They call it that because there's a UFO and it looks like it's got decorations on it, you know, like a wedding cake. (laughs) And it's very elaborate. Or maybe it's supposed to be, nowadays, they probably would call it a steampunk UFO because it has little bolts, you know, things on that. Sure, that's nice and clear. But Billy Meyer also claims he went back in time. And got photographs of flying dinosaurs, which he has now, you know, brought back to a present day and shown us. So if you believe the wedding cake UFO, I think you have to believe the dinosaur photos also. (laughs) Quite a bit to swallow indeed. You know, there was a part of me that thought the UFO topic would fade into the sunset, you know, a little bit like the way ESP has. Very hot in decades gone by, and it's still around, but not nearly with its popularity. Yet it seems, you know, all this To the Stars Academy stuff uh, seems to perpetuate it. Do you think there's a a trend up, down, or flat in interest in UFOs? It's hard to say. I mean, it goes in waves. Certain types of cases at certain times that seem to catch all the publicity. Now we're we're probably going in for a period of where everybody is paying so much attention to these uh, so-called military uh, UFOs. The To the stars, people are in Washington and have been in Washington and are talking to officials and trying to drum up interest in more congressional hearings. If you recall, there were congressional hearings on UFOs back in the late 60s. I think there were two different hearings. Basically, they didn't conclude anything. The different people came and gave their opinion. Carl Sagan, I think, testified. He was kind of a wishy-washy at that time, and he was kind of a, a neutral voice between the believers and the skeptics. Then you had Donald Menzel, who was the hardcore skeptic, and he went there and tried to argue that there's nothing to this. And then you had the late Dr. James McDonald, who uh, went there and said, oh, we have all this evidence of alien visitation and whatever. And basically, it got nowhere. It all got printed up very nicely and bound in the government printing office and so on, and nothing happened. But they're trying to bring that back. And of course, the thing about these so-called government UFO videos, the To the Stars, these Navy things, first of all, we don't even have the whole the whole video. We just It's just some little snippet that we're shown. We don't see the beginning. We don't see what happens later. I mean, if we could see the whole thing, we'd probably be in a much better position to figure out what's happening. But we don't have that because they were not actually released. They were leaked by somebody. And in fact, the two, the last two that they reported, the one they called the gimbal video and the one they called the go fast video, turns out that that was taken by the same plane on the same day and only something like 20 minutes apart. A fact that they have neglected to inform us, and maybe they didn't even realize it themselves. There's just so much nonsense and so much, uh, so much information that is, is being 
hidden from us. Uh, and they claim that they're trying to, you know, keep this all going and keep, you know, they're trying to, we're trying to inform the public about what's happening. Well, no, they're not. They're taking some very carefully, so like a little snippets of information and very carefully just feeding us what they want us to see. And, and of course, but unfortunately, so many journalists are, are so uh, credulous uh, and uncritical that they're willing to go along with this. Yeah, on the topic of journalists, how do you think the news media should treat the topic of UFOs? Well, any extraordinary claim, or any claim for that matter, extraordinary or not, should be substantiated. And don't, you know, rush off and say, oh, this happened here and that happened there until you can actually show, you know, just because somebody reported that something happened doesn't mean that it actually did. And then they learn these things in journalism school, I guarantee. I mean, I've never taken journalism classes, but I absolutely guarantee this is how they're told to do it, but it's not how they actually do it. And just about every reporter on every publication allows their own personal biases and underlying beliefs to get in the way of objective reporting. And it doesn't even matter if they're Democrats or Republicans or UFO believers or possibly even UFO skeptics, although you won't find any UFO skeptics writing for publications like that, um, that these people will will be much less critical of the beliefs that are in line with their own personal beliefs. And they'll be much less critical of those than they will of those that are you know going the other way. Whereas Francis Bacon tried to remind us to go the other way, that back was the late uh, 16th century, writing some pioneering uh, books and, you know, on philosophy and, and philosophy of science and, and what, you know, what can we know. If something pleases you, if a report of something pleases you or excites you, you should be especially suspicious of that. Right? We know you're the easiest person to fool. It's easy to fool yourself with this. So he says, if you know, if something comes along that just strikes you as remarkable and wonderful and fantastic, and you agree with it completely, it's like say if you believe in witches and somebody has a you know report of you know a witch you know hexing people down in a certain village or something. And that was at that time that was still very prevalent, and science had to deal with reports, reliable witness reports of witch sightings and women turning into rabbits and things like this. The reason I bring that up is just that Bacon reminds us to be especially suspicious of something that pleases us or strikes us as remarkably great or something like that. That's when you have to really be suspicious to keep yourself from going overboard and being fooled. Well, Robert, to wrap up, I suspect you and I will both agree, even though I didn't explicitly ask you the question, that we have no good evidence whatsoever that uh, any extraterrestrial species has ever visited us. What are your thoughts on the possibility of one day that actually happening? Uh, there's nothing impossible about that. But uh, if you look out at the universe, and especially even at our own galaxy and our galactic stellar neighborhood, it's really not very favorable for that kind of thing to happen. The size of the universe is simply vast and unimaginable. There's, there's hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy with each one on average might have five or ten planets and then the number of galaxies is probably greater than the number of stars. You just take that if phenomenal number. Of course, you've got other planets with life and civilization and so on out there. But you never know how common that is or where they are. We see absolutely no evidence whatsoever of anything like that in our solar system or in our stellar neighborhood. Now, if there were going to be you know, intelligent civilizations that are relatively nearby stars, say Alpha Centauri, Alpha Centauri, people don't seem to realize, it's approximately 50,000 times the distance to Jupiter. 
So however long it takes your spacecraft to, to travel to Jupiter, at a, let's say it's average speed, whatever that is, just multiply that by 50,000. If you can get to Jupiter in one year, you can get to Alpha Centauri in just 50,000 years of traveling at that same speed. Can you go faster? Well, yeah, you can. You need more energy. And then, when, of course, you need, then you got to stop when you get there because otherwise you're just going to whiz right by it. Just the practical aspects here are, are pretty bad. Uh, in fact, if you go to my blog, I, how can I go this far without mentioning my blog? Of course, Bad UFOs, badufos.com, uh, where I also have a book of the same title. Go to Bad UFOs and just enter in the search box, enter the word preposterous. And the reason is that there's a posting I made a couple of years ago uh, about some scientific, and this goes all the way back 60 years or whatever, this first really good scientific analysis of what it would take for interstellar travel. Edward Purcell, a physicist, who's a Nobel Prize winning physicist, by the way, he discovered NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, and a few other things. So he wrote a paper. He went into all the math. Even if you could perfectly convert into hydrogen fusion without blowing yourself up or whatever, it still isn't good enough. Even if you could convert matter to antimatter directly, it still wouldn't really allow you to travel at the speed of light or near the speed of light and so on because of fantastic amounts that you'd have to uh, take with you. And not only that, but you know, the shield yourself, uh, in fact, the shield the earth from your exhaust, because if you build that kind of a device, it would probably fry the entire planet if it went off nearby. Interstellar travel, basically, to put it in a nutshell, is preposterous. Unless we're talking about somebody very, very close within a few light years, and even that is, is not easy. Maybe perhaps someday possible, but so no, I don't expect any interstellar visits anytime soon or anytime really within the uh, well, at least within the next few million years, I would say. But yeah. who can say after that? Yeah. <laughs> Might be a more interesting universe if we did have some visitors, but it doesn't seem to be the one we actually live in. Yeah, well, I mean, the idea of SETI, you know, and of listening with, uh, you know, the radio telescopes, uh, it makes perfect sense. In fact, even Purcell noted this in his article back. 60 years ago, he said, you know, this business of traveling to the stars is preposterous. But this idea of using radio telescopes to communicate is actually makes sense from the standpoint of physics. And and it's, since then, we've, you know, looked into this and so on. And people are doing SETI, but of course, nobody's finding anything. Does that mean there's nobody out there? Not necessarily, but the odds aren't good. <laughs> We're going to be by ourselves for a very long time, I'm afraid. <laughs> Well, Robert, I want to thank you again for coming on. I'm going to direct all listeners to check out badufos.com. Anywhere else they should follow up with you? Well, I also have uh, debunker.com, which mostly is older uh, material, but uh, there's, there's quite a bit on there about some classic cases and things like that. Excellent. Well, I hope everybody checks that out. All right. Fantastic. Well, I've enjoyed this. Thanks to Robert for joining me today. If you're looking for more data-related content or more skeptical insights, head over to dataskeptic.com and see what we've got going on in the blog. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>